This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. Rashida Tlaib has the, I don't even want to call it the Palestinian flag because they're not a state, they're a territory that's about to probably get eviscerated and go away here shortly as we're going to turn that into a parking lot. In a predictable turn of events, that Republican who you just watched call for genocide against Palestinians in Gaza is now one of two Republicans that submitted a resolution condemning and denouncing anti-Semitism. Now, in a vacuum, a resolution condemning and denouncing anti-Semitism is obviously perfectly reasonable, although he's not necessarily the best messenger for obvious reasons. But to make matters even more bizarre, this supposedly anti-Semitism resolution that he submitted is actually being labeled as anti-Semitic by Jews. Jewish activists. Ryan Grimm reports, a new House resolution which may be voted on as early as tonight clearly and firmly states that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. This comes after a previous resolution hinted at that claim, but did not fully state it. So now Congress wants to leave no question. Now, as you can see here in part four, it's unequivocal. And if you remove this part, then the entire resolution is just objectively good. Denouncing anti-Semitism and reiterating support for Jewish people is necessary but equating anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism is just downright absurd. And as Ryan Grimm also points out, anybody who votes against this resolution will be said to have voted against condemning anti-Semitism. And that's exactly the point of this. This is extremely cynical, but not necessarily surprising. But we know why they're doing this. It is getting increasingly difficult for Israel supporters to defend their ongoing slaughter of innocent civilians. The New York Times reports that civilians in Gaza are being killed at an historic pace and once the ceasefire ended israel killed over 700 people in gaza within 24 hours and also gazans are reporting that the bombing has been non-stop and in some areas they've officially ran out of food so if they're lucky enough to avoid getting bombed they could starve to death and just to put things into perspective for you listen to this unicef spokesperson james elder describe the situation in gaza Just on sunrise now, uh, a night of utterly relentless bombardments. Um, I I cannot stop thinking about the 1.8 million people here in the south. Um, I don't think there was more than a five or ten minute period throughout the course of the night, and and I really didn't sleep where where something wasn't flying overhead or the sky being lit up and the 1.8 million people in in the south i spend my days in khan yunus it is mattress next to mattress person next to person 10,000 people in that shelter 20,000 in that shelter 500 sleeping outside and 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 of these bombardments such is the tight-knit pack of mums and children and families that i can't imagine how it would seem to me that everything that's blasted off, I, I pretend no military expertise, but it all must hit something, someone, 
Now, when you hear numbers like 1.8 million Gazans under bombardment or 15,000 plus deaths, it's such a large number that it's difficult to visualize that. It's hard to fathom the actual human toll when you just see these big numbers. It doesn't mean anything to us on a broader level. But I want to put it into perspective for all of us. So here's just one man reacting to all of these numbers that we're seeing. This is a man who just lost his entire family. The pain that he is feeling is incomprehensible. I couldn't imagine it. Losing one family member is incredibly difficult. I'm still not over my dad who passed away multiple years ago, but to lose everyone all at once, everyone in your family, I mean, I, I wouldn't know how to, how to go forward. How could anyone? It's just such a huge loss that it's, it's inconceivable to even fathom what that'd be like. I'd be inconsolable. I mean, even if you survive, what's your quality of life like after that, after you lose everything and even if you don't necessarily have family members that have died well maybe you lost your home you've been living there and now it's all taken away from you what's your quality of life after that like it's not just the worst case scenarios that we have to grapple with here it's just other instances where okay you survive but you lost everything for example here's a child in gaza reacting to his room being destroyed in an israeli airstrike <laughs> Now, the Twitter account who shared this claims that he said, I wish I could die and find peace. I mean, what is he, like 11, 12 years old at most? This right here is what turning Gaza into a parking lot looks like. There are people there with lives and family and homes and aspirations, dreams, desires, and that's all being destroyed. And it's indefensible. I don't know how you can defend this and live with yourself. So if you condemn the Zionist regime of Israel for doing that, then supporters of this genocide, like Max Miller, who wanted to turn Gaza into a parking lot, who said he wanted to do that, well, he's now trying to label you as an anti-Semite. Isn't that a little bit interesting how a member of a fascist party is supposedly denouncing hate as if they're not the party that propagates hate nonstop? That's what the Republican Party's entire ethos is, but yet all of a sudden they're against hate. Yeah, that's, that's fucking bullshit. They're not anti-hate. They're pro-genocide. That's what this is about. The goal of this resolution is to shut down critics of Israel. Since they can't defend Israel, they're just going to smear anyone who condemns Israel. Now, Matt Lex shared a video from Israeli professor Avi Schleim, where he concisely explains how this conflation of anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism is being used to silence critics of Israel. Anti-Semitism is the hatred of Jews because they are Jews. Uh, Anti-Zionism is uh, opposition either to the Zionist ideology, the official ideology of the state of Israel, or more commonly, it's 
criticism of specific policies of the Israeli government, particularly policies towards the Palestinians, policies of the occupation. Um, Anti-Semitism is a very ugly thing and can never be justified. Anti-Zionism, most of the criticisms, most of the anti-Zionism, Zionist um, statements that I've come across are reasonable, evidence-based, and legitimate. But is, the problem is that Israel and its friends and its very powerful friends around the world deliberately, deliberately conflate the two so as to uh, pretend to claim that any criticism of um, the state of Israel and its policies is anti-Semitic. And the last example of that I've already given at the beginning of my talk, which is the Secretary General of the United Nations. Uh, who made a very um, uh, humane statement about the need to cease fire and protect civilians. And the Israeli representative immediately accuses him of anti-Semitism and of blood libel. So th this is a very uh, clear illustration of the strategies of Israel and its friends around the world. Right. No notes needed. He is absolutely correct. Now, he's not alone in pointing this out because Jewish leftists on Twitter responded to this resolution by explaining that this resolution, even though they claim that they're condemning anti-Semitism, the resolution itself is anti-Semitic, and they explain why. Ellie Valley, for example, says, among other things, by codifying ethno-nationalism as the only acceptable expression of Judaism in America, this is the most anti-Semitic resolution to be considered in generations. LOL overruled writes, making Jews all over the world unsafe by tying them all to a fascist government that's killing thousands of civilians. Jordan Zakarin writes, honestly, as a Jew, this feels more anti-Semitic to me than most anti-Zionist rhetoric. There there are a whole lot of Jews who are anti-Zionist who oppose a right-wing government's war on civilians. Would you say someone is anti-Catholic if they condemn the Vatican's abuse cover-ups? And that's such a good point. Joshua P. Hill writes, anti-Zionism will never be anti-Semitism no matter how these ghouls vote. If anything, weaponizing our identity to force people to support a genocidal apartheid state is anti-Semitic. And lastly, Jewish Voice for Peace writes, this Republican-led resolution threatens both Jewish and Palestinian safety, ignores the threat of rising white nationalism, and is a direct attack on free speech. Every member of Congress should vote against it. They continue conflating anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism conflates all Jews with the Israeli state and endangers Jewish communities. Just as blaming all Jews for Israel's actions is anti-Semitic, so is the inverse, suggesting that Jewish people are synonymous with Israel and Zionism. And what they're saying here is crucial. But I'm assuming that the supporters of Israel, the defenders of genocide, they're not going to listen to these Jewish voices even as they claim that they're against anti-Semitism. They don't actually care. They're pretending to be outraged at anti-Semitism because they just they don't know how else to defend Israel. You can't defend Israel's actions based on the merits, just objectively speaking. So they try to weaponize the identities of Jewish people and they use that to shut down criticism. It's just it's so disgusting. 
I mean, at a time when anti-Semitism is on the rise in this country and around the world, this resolution is essentially an incitement of hate against Jewish people. They are not responsible for the violence being perpetrated by the Israeli government. And to say that criticism of Israel and their governments is anti-Semitism, that ascribes culpability to Jewish people who are not responsible for what Israel is doing. And to suggest that they are responsible and to criticize the government of Israel as a criticism of them is just so fucking despicable. It's like saying criticism of Saudi Arabia is, uh, is Islamophobic or criticism of Nigeria's government is racist. It's absurd, right? I mean, if you ever criticize a gay person like Milo Yiannopoulos, then I guess you're homophobic. It, like, what are we doing here? This is so comical, right? Governments are governments and people are people. And furthermore, Judaism has been around long before Zionism. So it's so cynical to conflate the two just to silence critics of Israel. It's disgusting. But unfortunately, this is what our government and largely the media are continuing to do. Rather than having the courage to condemn this genocide being perpetrated with our tax dollars, members of Congress are instead choosing to defame the people brave enough to condemn it. We recently learned that APAC is planning to spend more than $100 million to unseat progressive members of Congress, and that process is already well underway. And we're going to talk about that. But first, I want to talk about a revelation from Ryan Grimm's new book that gives us some insight into why APAC hates members of the squad and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez so much. And spoiler alert, it's because they couldn't be bought. Quote, while in Kansas, the campaign got its first taste of what Washington was going to be like, a representative of APAC called Corbin Trent and told him there was $100,000 ready to be handed over to Ocasio-Cortez to, quote, start a conversation with the organization, with much more than that to come. Chakrabarty and AOC both told me they were shocked at the offer. The campaign was flush with cash and it was rejected out of hand. Quote, I was expecting the corruption to be much more subtle, Trent recalled. This was basically a bag filled with cash. Now, this attempt to bribe AOC came after her 2018 appearance on PBS's firing line with Margaret Hoover, where she criticized Israel's occupation but admitted that she wasn't an expert on the issue and still needed to learn more. Now, that interview sparked controversy specifically because she dared to utter the phrase occupation when referring to Israel's occupation. But let's go back and watch what she said. You, in the campaign, made one tweet or made one statement mm -hmm. that referred to um, a a killing by Israeli soldiers of civilians in Gaza mm -hmm. and called it a massacre, which mm -hmm. became a little bit controversial. Mm -hmm. But I haven't seen anywhere. Uh, what is your position on Israel? Well, I believe absolutely in Israel's right to exist. I, I am a proponent of a two-state solution. Um, and for me, it's not, it's, this is not a referendum, I think, on the state of Israel. For me, the lens through which I saw this incident as an activist, as an organizer, if 60 people were killed in Ferguson, Missouri, if 60 people were killed in the South Bronx, unarmed, 60 people were killed in, in Puerto Rico, I just looked at that incident more through, uh, through just as an incident. And to mm -hmm. me, it would just be completely unacceptable if that happened on our shores. But uh, I am, of course, the, the dynamic there in terms of geopolitics of and the course. war in the Middle East is very different than mm -hmm. people expressing their First Amendment right to protest. Well, yes. But I also think that what people are starting to see, at least in, in the occupation uh, of, of Palestine, is um, just an, an increasing crisis of humanitarian condition. And that, to me, is just 
where I tend to mm -hmm. come from on this issue. You use the term the occupation of Palestine. Mm. What did oh. you mean by that? Oh, um, I think it, what I meant is like the, the settlements that are increasing in, in some of these areas and, and places where, um, where Palestinians are experiencing uh, difficulty in access to uh, their housing and homes. Do you think you can expand on that? Yeah, I mean, I think I'd also just, I, I am not the expert on geopolitics on this issue. You know, for me, I'm a firm believer in, uh, in finding a, a two-state solution in this issue. And um, I'm happy to sit down with leaders on both of, this on both of these. For me, I just look at, at things through a human rights lens. What do you mean by occupation? I mean, what do you mean by what do I mean by occupation? It's pretty self-explanatory, don't you think, Margaret? But I mean, like a lot of media pundits, she is being purposefully obtuse. She knows what AOC is referring to because it's pretty obvious. Now, regardless, APAC saw that and they thought, you know what? Rather than immediately making an enemy out of her, what if we try to bribe and brainwash her instead? And that's exactly what they tried to do. HuffPost continues. HuffPost followed up with Trent, who confirmed his memory of what occurred. Quote, the implication was that her positions could be repaired with conversations, that her positions were based on a lack of information and lack of proximity to enough of a variety of people, Trent recalled. But Ocasio-Cortez saw APAC as one of the special interests whose influence she had run to diminish. And by that time, she was already on her way to being an online fundraising powerhouse thanks to her grassroots appeal. Saikot Chakrabarty, who would become the lawmaker's chief of staff, likewise confirmed his memory of when Trent brought it up. APAC denied to HuffPost that any of its representatives reached out to Ocasio-Cortez's team this way. Quote, this is the first time APAC is is ever hearing of this story, said Marsha Whitman, spokesperson for APAC. To the extent it ever happened, it did not involve APAC. Yes, because why would APAC of all organizations ever lie? It's not like they have a history of being dishonest and lying, so uh, I'm sure they're being perfectly honest and truthful here. That's definitely the case. Now, like all members of Congress, I have my criticisms and disagreements with members of the squad, but I really admire AOC and other progressives for resisting APAC's bribes. And you shouldn't have to give someone credit for denying corruption and rejecting it. But when that's the norm in D.C., it's nice to at least see some members of Congress go against the grain, even if they know they're losing out on a lot of money and they're inevitably going to see money being spent against them. Now, this explains why so many members of Congress are afraid to criticize Israel. It's because APAC calls and they have to answer. Otherwise, their political career may be short-lived. Now, take Shri Thanadar, for example. So on December 5th, he tweeted, I can no longer stay silent on the genocide taking place in Palestine. Israel has paid off politicians for far too long. I know this means I'll lose APAC financial support, but I don't need it. We need to come together to free Palestine from the terrorists state of Israel. Now, at first glance, you might think, wow, this is somebody who finally has the courage to do the right thing and condemn APAC, except uh, he deleted that tweet. And after he seemingly released that amazing statement, well, he followed up by saying, I was just, <laughs> I was just hacked. <laughs> I'm fucking believable. And a misleading tweet was sent from my account. I have deleted the tweet and taken steps to secure my account. My official statement on Israel is below. Now, I'm not going to read the whole statement, but he basically defends Israel uncritically and denounces the idea of conditioning aid to them. Because God forbid people think you're against genocide even for a second. That would be terrible. 
Now, look, I don't know if he was actually hacked or if an aide posted that on his behalf or if he momentarily was courageous enough to post that himself and condemn Israel before changing his mind. I don't know. But that right there, that coward behavior is the norm in D.C. Coward politicians being complicit with genocide is just kind of what we've come to expect. And they refuse to criticize Israel under any circumstance. And in fact, they will reiterate that Israel is good despite the war crimes that they're committing. And they can say that because they don't even acknowledge the existence of war crimes in the first place. Case in point. There are some real questions about what's happening on the ground in Gaza, about the really extraordinary civilian death toll that has happened as a result of this war. Do you believe that anything that Israel has done in these six weeks of fighting has amounted to a war crime? Of course not. Uh, of, of course not. Stunning, right? But again, this is the power of lobbying in action. It turns politicians into drones. It turns them into NPCs, and their dialogue tree is limited. What they can say and can't say is going to be determined by the interest groups who are funding them. It's the same way that the NRA buys Republican complicity in gun violence. APAC does the same thing. The Israel lobby does the same thing to both Democrats and Republicans. They buy complicity and sometimes enthusiastic support when it comes to Republicans in their genocide of Gaza. Now, if you go against the grain, you'll be punished for it, which is why so few members of Congress do this. And that's what's happening to Jamal Bowman. He went against the grain. And as 530H Jeffrey Skelly reports, Westchester co-executive George Latimer has filed to run against Jamal Bowman in New York's 16th Congressional District Democratic Party primary next year. Bowman is definitely one of the more endangered squad members although mid-cycle redistricting could affect things. Now, Alex Salmon of Slate reacted to the news, writing, there it is, after weeks of unnecessary hemming and hawing, during which he stockpiled an extra helping of cash from the Israel lobby, George Latimer is challenging Jamal Bowman, aiming to replace one of the party's rising stars as a 70-year-old white freshman congressman. Now, unsurprisingly, this news comes after Latimer returned from a trip to Israel. And Common Dreams adds, Latimer suggested to the Washington Post early last month that if he ran against Bowman, it might be that this becomes a proxy argument between the left and the far left. He later told Politico that Israel would be a big issue, but not the whole issue, and his campaign would focus on his record as the most progressive county official in the state. Sure. And I'm sure you'll all be totally surprised to learn that Latimer does not support a ceasefire. Jamal Bowman does. Shocking right? Now, the sad part is that this is actually going to be a heated primary. And next to Ilhan Omar, I think that Jamal Bowman is probably the next person in the most danger of losing his seat. And Common Dreams adds, Bowman is the fourth squad member to face a serious primary challenger for 2024, joining representatives Cory Bush, Summer Lee, and Ilhan Omar. They are all among the eight progressives who in October voted against the bipartisan House resolution expressing unconditional support for Israel's government as it waged war on Gaza. Now, on top of that, members of the squad were among just 14 members of the House of Representatives to vote against a fascist-sponsored resolution equating anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. This is why AIPAC hates them so much. Now, AOC is already putting in the work to save her embattled colleagues and sent out a fundraising email on behalf of Jamal Bowman, letting people know that AIPAC's $100 million effort to defeat members of the squad is already underway. So I'm really glad to see her have his back already, and I assume that members of the squad will continue to stand in solidarity with one another because that's really the only chance that they have at thwarting this attempt by AIPAC to 
sink all of their political careers. Now, in an interview with Mehdi Hassan about his book, Ryan Grimm explains how these attacks by APAC in this effort has kind of reinvigorated members of the squad, and they're now motivated to fight back, and they're not going to take this lying down. And other progressive organizations are trying to figure out some way to stop APAC from being successful here. Uh, you say in the book, and you talk a great deal in the book, and it's very timely given the war in Gaza, how APAC has targeted members of the squad over their uh, pro-Palestinian views, their anti-Israeli views, as early back as 2021, when they denounced Israel's bombing of Gaza back then. There's now this reported $100 million push to primary them because of their call for a ceasefire. What's their reaction been to this push by APAC? So Justice Democrats uh, has, I think, become reinvigorated. Justice Democrats is the organization that kind of was spawned by the staffers from the first Bernie Sanders campaign. They, they, you know, recruited and supported a lot of the a lot of the squad. They supported all of the squad, recruited some of them, and have continued to, you know, elect further squad members since. They've been a bit in retreat uh, in in recent years, both in terms of fundraising, staffing, uh, profile. But I think. This, you know, there, there's a there's a phrase that, kind of, you know, nothing focuses the mind like the hangman's noose. And, you know, the the, the question has been called by APAC. You know, the, the, the threat is out there that there's, like you said, $100 million is going to be spent to purge the party of, of critics of Israel. And so they, the only choice is to organize and, and fight back. And from my understanding, there is a, a broad-based uh, effort underway with a broad coalition of progressive groups to figure out how uh, they can push back against this, this storm of money that they know is coming the next primary cycle. So, look, I'm glad to know that progressive groups are forming a plan because that's the only way to defeat this serious threat. And look, to be real, in 2024, we could lose one, if not multiple members of the squad. That's a real possibility. I don't want to be too doomer, but I'm just being real with you all. So what we need to do is support them in any way we possibly can. If you live in one of their districts, consider signing up to volunteer. And if you don't live in one of their, their districts, then... Send them a couple of bucks if you have it. The squad is by no means perfect. No politician is. But they are by far the most progressive members of Congress we've had in my lifetime. And losing them would be a huge step backwards for the left. So we need to defend the gains that we've made. And that includes protecting members of the squad from these primary challenges funded by APAC. I think that the Florida statute itself is unconstitutional, giving that kind of power to the party. The party itself is a political committee. It's not a government agency, but it's it's playing a quasi-governmental function here. And it has no right to block democracy this way. It has a responsibility to the public good. And we all know that we're living at a time when our, our democracy itself is in crisis. We all know that the threats to democracy uh, of them that are represented by people such as Donald Trump. But the irony here, of course, is that the Democratic Party claims to be trying to protect democracy, but their way of doing it is to suppress democracy. You just watched a clip from a joint town hall between two of Biden's 2024 presidential primary opponents, Marianne Williamson and Cenk Uger. Now, Marianne Williamson was speaking about the Florida Democratic Party's decision to unilaterally cancel the 2024 primary before a single vote 
has been cast. And both Williamson and Uger are rightfully pissed off. In fact, we all should be. Politico reports Florida appears poised to hold no presidential primary election for Democrats this cycle after the state party submitted only President Joe Biden's name as a candidate up for nomination. Now, as journalist Ryan Grimm adds, here's the moment where the Florida Democratic Party nominated Biden. I'm told by a party member that it was not explained to people that by nominating him, that also would keep other candidates off the ballot. Even enthusiastic supporters of Biden would not have purposefully canceled the primary. So whether or not this is a case of corruption or incompetence or perhaps both, that remains to be seen. But I don't really care. I don't care why they did this. They have to undo it. You don't get to unilaterally give Biden the state's pledged delegates before voters even have the chance to make their voices heard. That decision remains solely with voters. And you might be thinking, well, I mean, why does it even matter? Because Biden's going to win the primary there anyway. So why even bother holding a primary? Now, let me just say this. If he's going to win, then certainly you have no reason to go out of your way to rig the primary against his opponents. But second of all, and most importantly, inevitability is not a justification for the cancellation of an entire fucking primary. The process matters. Giving voters the ability to make their voices heard matters. Even authoritarian regimes hold elections. For example, Kim Jong-un supposedly won his last election in North Korea with 99% of the vote. Now, just in case there's any question, no, he didn't actually get 99% of the vote. The election is obviously rigged. So the question is, why even bother going through the process if he and everyone else already knows the outcome? And it's because cultivating legitimacy matters demonstrating to citizens that there is a process in place that is followed and that there are rules in place that are followed is how you build legitimacy for the state it's how you get people to buy into the political process and believe that things matter any political scientist will tell you the importance of legitimacy but democrats in florida apparently can't even grasp a simple concept that literal totalitarian leaders are able to grasp but this isn't north korea and that's not a very good comparison because elections here matter or at least they're supposed to but apparently florida democrats didn't get the memo now dean phillips another biden primary opponent was also pissed off and rightfully so politico continues the move to leave representative dean phillips off the primary ballot left the minnesota democrat enraged on thursday in a statement first provided to politico phillips who has launched a long shot primary bid against biden accused florida democratic party officials of rigging the primary he threatened a lawsuit and a convention fight if he didn't win ballot access in the state quote americans would expect the absence of democracy in Tehran, not Tallahassee, said Phillips. The intentional disenfranchisement of voters runs counter to everything for which our Democratic Party and country stand. Our mission as Democrats is to defeat authoritarianism, not become them. In his statement, Phillips called the handling of the process by the Florida Democrats a blatant act of electoral corruption and demanded Biden condemn and immediately address it. The Biden campaign did not provide a comment for this story. Nikki Fry, the chair of the Florida Democrat Party contended the party followed its standard process that was outlined on its website. Quote, we are dismayed by Dean Phillips' conspiratorial and inappropriate comments comparing the state of Florida to the Iranian regime as part of his knee-jerk reaction to long-established procedures, Fried said. Quote, this is unbecoming of someone running for higher office. I'm sorry, but that comment is outrageous. Absolutely outrageous and false. And I shouldn't have to say this, but... He's not being conspiratorial if you literally did the thing that he said you did. 
Now, I am no fan of Dean Phillips. I think that that's probably obvious to anyone who knows my policy positions, but he's right on the principle, and I support what he's saying here. Everything he's saying is correct. This is not okay. Florida Democrats, they just straight up canceled a primary and disenfranchised every Democratic Party voter, and now they're calling one of the candidates who was fucked over conspiratorial for calling them authoritarian. I mean, they have no shame. Now, they're not just anti-democratic, despite democracy literally being in their fucking name. They're also hypocrites as well. Jen Uger pointed this out on Twitter, saying, Democrats, democracy is on the line. Also, Democrats, we're canceling elections in the primary. Translation, we had to destroy democracy in order to save it. And he's exactly right. How can you correctly call out the threat that Trump poses to our democracy only to then cancel a primary yourselves it's outrageous to me but i do want to get to more from that town hall between williamson and uger because they're going to describe their action plan because they're not just going to take this lying down and i'm glad that that's the case but here's what they say it's wrong and it's also uh undercutting of the most basic rights if we cannot if we cannot um assume that the people of the United States have fair and equal access to knowing even who their candidates are, then we don't have fair and equal access to the vote. And this is why this is a transgression of the 14th Amendment. And this is what we will be claiming in court if we have to. Um, both Dean, all of us, Dean and Jenk and myself are going to take all legal action that we can and that we feel is necessary. We're going to communicate uh, to the public and we uh, appreciate, I know all three of us appreciate that you are here. You know, you can't let these so-called little transgressions pass. We have to hold a line right here. This is not just about the fact that it's 200 and some odd delegates. It's not just the fact that it's... Uh, drama going on within the Democratic Party. This is the chipping away of our democracy. And as Chen pointed out, what an irony that the party called the Democratic Party, the party that claims to be the champion of democracy, has basically decided that Joe Biden will be the candidate. Now, this is authoritarianism, just as Chen said. When I was a child, we were told that in the Soviet Union, people could vote, but they were told who their options were. And that's exactly what's happening here. And you have over 70% of Democratic voters who have made it clear time and time again that they want to hear other options. In this case, other options exist. And at, at this point, the Democratic Party, the state of Florida itself, have no right to manipulate the uh, the circumstances so in such a way that people are denied access uh, to who their candidates are and to hear from us and to know that we're about. Unfortunately, this is part of a larger concerted effort that the Democratic Party has been taking. This has to do with media suppression, it has to do with invisibilization, erasure, um, but it stops It stops right here, or at least it will not go unchallenged right here by myself. And I think I hear the same kind of conviction in Jenks' voice. We certainly have heard it from Dean as well. And um, I'm with him 100%. And all of us will do what we feel we have to do. And uh, I think that we're the ones who are standing up for democracy in this case, not the Democratic Party. Well said. And uh, look, this is not the first time that Democrats have attacked democracy. In 2016, DNC Chair Debbie Wasserman Schultz was literally forced to resign in shame after she was caught red-handed sabotaging Bernie Sanders. And she was the person who was supposed to make sure that the process was fair. It was her job to remain neutral. That was the obligation of the DNC charter that she refused to follow, hence why she was forced to resign. So this is not a new phenomenon. But 
It's not acceptable. And Democratic Party voters should never accept this. Now, one last thing that I want to say is that when you look at hypothetical matchups between Biden and Trump, aggregate polling data currently shows that Biden is losing to Trump. I repeat, Biden would lose to Donald Trump if the election were held today. Now, this is not a fucking game. Voters should have the option to nominate someone else who has a better chance of beating Trump in 2024. Now, odds are that even if the primary was perfectly fair, Biden would still likely coast through the primary again due to that incumbency advantage. But Democrats do not have the right to take away our ability to choose a candidate that we believe is better positioned to defeat Trump in 2024. And the fact that they think that they do speaks to their hubris. And it's part of the reason why we got Trump in the first place in 2016. They should have learned that when you fuck over your own voters and spit in their eyes, that is going to backfire. And they're doing it again when the stakes couldn't be higher. So this is something that is obviously not acceptable and it cannot stand. And despite my disagreements with Uger, Phillips, and Williamson as well, I absolutely support their effort to stop this and you should too. Everybody who cares about democracy should be consistent and they should call out the people who are a threat to democracy regardless if they're Republicans or Democrats. And I hope that any liberals who see this will follow suit and also condemn the Democratic Party in Florida here because what they did is completely egregious. They wanna call you a dictator. You use the words, I am your retribution. And now before that, you said if you've been wronged and you used other words as well. But I want to be very, very clear on this. To be clear, do you in any way have any plans whatsoever, if reelected president, to abuse power, to break the law, to use the government to go after people? You mean like they're using right now. So in the history of our country, What's happened to us, again, has never happened before. Over nonsense, over nothing, made up charges. I often say Al Capone, he was one of the greatest of all time, if you like criminals. He was a mob boss, the likes of which Scarface, they call him. And he got indicted once. I got indicted four times. I want to go back to this one issue, though, because the media has been focused on this and attacking you yeah. under no circumstances. You are promising America tonight you would never abuse power as retribution against anybody. Except for day one. Yeah. Except Look, what? He's going crazy. Except for day one. Meaning? I want to close the border and I want to drill, that's drill, not a, that's, drill. That's not, oh, no. that's not retribution. I got I'm going to be... I'm going to be, you know, he keeps, we love this guy. He says, you're not going to be a dictator, are you? I said, no, 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 other than day one. We're closing the border and we're drilling, drilling, drilling. After that, I'm not a dictator. So that, okay? that, that sounds to me like you're going back to the policies when you were president. <laughs> That's All right, exactly. take a break. Just getting started. Well, you heard it straight from the horse's mouth. Trump only wants to be a dictator on his first day in office, which to me is incredibly reassuring because after learning about Project 2025 and his plan to dismantle the administrative state where he then unilaterally used the FBI to go after political opponents he referred to as vermin, not to mention his attempt to illegally stay in power after losing the last election, you know, I was really beginning to worry. But he's only vowing to abuse power on day one. What a relief. Now, to be clear, yes, he had a facetious tone, but I'm sorry, you don't get to dismiss this as a joke 
after he's put in place concrete steps to dismantle democracy and abuse power. And prior to this town hall with Hannity, Cash Patel, a former administration official, made another admission about his dictatorial intent on Steve Bannon's podcast. And as you're going to see, this was no joke. Highly confident that when you go back and and is uh, a senior member of this uh, uh, administration, President Trump's administration, starting in the afternoon of the 20th of January of 2025, uh, do you feel confident that you will be able to deliver the goods, that we can have serious prosecutions and accountability. And I want the Morning Joe producers that watch us and all the producers that watch us, this is just not rhetoric. We're absolutely dead serious. We're not, you, you cannot have a constitutional republic and allow what these uh, deep staters have done to the country. The deep state, the administrative state, the fourth branch of government never mentioned in the Constitution is going to be taken apart brick by brick. And the people that did these evil deeds will be held accountable and prosecuted, criminal prosecutions. Uh, Cash, I I know you're probably going to be head of the CIA, but do you believe that you can deliver the goods on this in a pretty short short order of the first couple of months so we can get rolling on prosecutions? Yes, we got the bench for it, Bannon, and you know those guys. I'm not going to go out there and say their names right now so the radical left-wing media can terrorize them. But, excuse me, the one thing we learned in the Trump administration the first go-around is we got to put in all-America patriots top to bottom. And we got them for law enforcement. We got them for intel collection. We got them for offensive operations. We got them for DOD, CIA, everywhere. And the one thing we will do that they never will do is we will follow the facts and the law and go to courts of law and correct these justices and lawyers who have been prosecuting these cases based on politics and actually issuing them as lawfare. We will go out and find the conspirators, not just in government, but in the media. Yes, we're going to come after the people in the media who lied about American citizens, who helped Joe Biden rig presidential elections. We're going to come after you, whether it's criminally or civilly, we'll figure that out. But yeah, we're putting you all on notice. And Steve, this is why they hate us. This is why we're tyrannical. This is why we're dictators. Well, at least he's self-aware, I guess. Now, aside from the fact that he stated clearly that we're going to come after people in the media, he also gave a nod to the Project 2025 goal of replacing all bureaucrats with Trump loyalists so he can wield absolute power absolutely, which confirms people close to Trump are full steam ahead with this tyrannical project. It's not just the Heritage Foundation and other right-wing organizations doing this alone. They now have Trump's approval. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Project 2025, well, as Dame explains, it's a blueprint which assumes that the next president will be able to rule by fiat under the unitary executive theory, which posits that the president has the power to control the entire federal executive branch. It is also based on the premise that the next president will implement Schedule F, which allows the president to fire any federal employee who has policymaking authority and replace them with a presidential appointee who is not voted on in the Senate. Now, he theoretically could make all of these sweeping changes in a single day. So when he says, I only want to be a dictator for one day, that's really all he needs to institute most of his plan. And once he's done this, once he's given himself the authority to make sweeping policy changes with no checks and balances, well, Here's what he wants to actually do. Here's what Project 2025's mandate for leadership says that they are planning when it comes to policies. 
Quote, the social conservative wish list calls for ending abortion, diversity and inclusion efforts, protections for LGBTQ people, and most importantly, banning any and all LGBTQ content. In fact, the mandate for leadership makes eradicating LGBTQ people from public life its top priority. Its number one promise is to restore the family as the centerpiece of American life and protect our children. They are explicit in how they plan to do so, as you'll see in the paragraph below. They plan to proceed by declaring any and all LGBTQ content to be pornographic in nature. And that paragraph reads, Pornography manifested today in the omnipresent propagation of transgender ideology and sexualization of children, for instance, is not a political Gordian knot inextricably binding up disparate claims about free speech, property rights, sexual liberation, and child welfare. It has no claim to First Amendment protection. Its purveyors are child predators and misogynistic exploiters of women. Their product is as addictive as any illicit drug and as psychologically destructive as any crime. Pornography should be outlawed. The people who produce and distribute it should be imprisoned. Educators and public librarians who purvey it should be classed as registered sex offenders, and telecommunications and technology firms that facilitate its spread should be shuttered. So if porn should be outlawed and any and all LGBTQ plus content is designated as porn and they want to imprison anyone who disseminates said porn, you can see how this leads to a situation where all gay propaganda is banned and free speech is restricted to the point where the movement's existence is criminalized, as was the case in Russia, where gay propaganda was banned and the LGBTQ movement itself was subsequently banned. And none of this is hyperbole. They say, quote, trans ideology has no claim to First Amendment protection. They're saying we can do what we want, even if it violates the Constitution. That's what Project 2025 entails. But this is just one issue. We're just talking about LGBTQ plus rights. I mean, you, we've barely scratched the surface on other issues. Trump has already broadcasted his intent to abuse power. He's planning, for example, a radical crackdown on immigration that includes increased raids, mass deportations, and even ideological screenings. So when someone expresses clear intent to be a dictator and literally admits that they plan to abuse power, I think that we should believe them. And guess what? If the election were held today, this person who's saying, I want to be a dictator, I'm going to abuse power, would win. Aggregate polling data shows that Trump is 2.1 points ahead of Biden overall in hypothetical matchups, and he also has a lead in pivotal swing states too. Now, Trump is very much aware that he is stoking fear in normal Americans who don't want to live in a Trump dictatorship, and his strategy to, I guess, assuage their fears has been to basically point at Joe Biden and say he's the one who actually is a threat to democracy, and he's done this over and over and over again. And it's obviously not working. Now, to make matters worse, Trump supporters, it's not like they're saying, hey, look, I support you, but this is a little bit too far. No, many of them are celebrating the fact that he wants to be a dictator. They think it's based, literally. Grace Chong, the CFO of Bannon's podcast, tweeted, I'm down for a Trump dictatorship. And if you look at the replies, a lot of conservatives agreed, and others tweeted that it was their favorite part of the town hall. Now, that's not the totality of responses. Some conservatives expressed skepticism that he'd follow through on his threat to be a dictator, since he did say he'd lock up Hillary Clinton, but he never did. So I, I don't know if that means that they want him to, but just don't believe that he will. Uh, others thought mm, this is a bit of a bad strategy, not necessarily saying, hey, it's just bad because I support democracy. I mean, the ambivalence that we're seeing 
and downright support for this among his base should be alarming to everyone. The fact that so many Americans now are openly saying, I support the idea of a dictatorship should scare people. Now, the question is, how are the rest of conservative media responding to this? Because it's one thing for just Trump supporters to act like dipshits because that's what we expect. But what are the media people saying? Well, Steve Bannon, for one, is pissed that Hannity dared to ask the question in the first place. Murdoch's a moron. Murdoch's, Murdoch so missed what happened in 15, 16. He was ordering nails to do this stuff. He came to the White House. He's not a bright guy. He's not a bright guy. He's kind of a nepo because his, his, his father, had they had money. The sons are the biggest mortars in the world. Untethered with, with ales gone, this is truly Steve, a TV for stupid people. Sean Hannity actually thought he was helping Trump last night. Let me ask you a question. Will you be a dictator? Trump gives a full heckle. And here's what I love. The audience gets it. They're laughing. By the way, Sean, they're laughing at you. They're laughing at this stupid, ridiculous question. Of course, Trump's not a dictator. It's absurd on the face of even to consider, even to ask that question that Morning Joe and those guys can cut the clips on shows you're an idiot. And we don't have time for idiots, bro. This is a this is a war. OK, this is a war. We don't have time for a sunshine patriots in this nonsense. And don't carry the water for the Murdochs and don't carry the water for the left. And if you don't say, well, I'm the biggest little Trump thing, you're carrying the water. Whoever, it is disgusting that you ask that question. Let me be blunt. It's disgusting you ask that question. But then when Trump heckles you, that's a heckle, bro. And when the audience has a belly laugh and they're laughing at you, you come back and ask it again. How dumb are you? It's absurd. You're carrying the water for our enemies. Don't you get that? And don't you get it when, when the guy heckles you and, and the audience laughs in your face? Maybe that's the time to write down that number two pencil. Maybe I shouldn't go again and ask it again. He gave you a freaking answer. And the audience backed him up in the answer. Full stop, that's all you need. Move on to the next thing. Obscene. An obscenity. Listen, you can express dictatorial intent to come after people in the media, but don't you dare use the word dictator in the process because then, mm, let's be honest, you're being a little bit too conspicuous. That's what I took away from that. It's amazing, right? Hannity asked the question because it is a sticking point for a lot of people and it is why Trump isn't doing as well as he could be doing. Currently, he's beating Biden, but the fear that he wants to be a dictator, which is legitimate, by the way, is going to drive a lot more support to Biden because they don't want to live in a fucking dictatorship. Can't say I blame them. I agree with that. So they're scared. And Trump, he could get away with, you know, I'm just being facetious, he. I only want to be a dictator for one day. If he wasn't actually putting together a fucking plan to seize control of the government. Now, furthermore, Trump could go out of his way to reassure Americans that he will respect the rule of law. He could denounce what Cash Patel said and claim that he's never going to abuse power. We might not believe him, but at least we see that he's trying to mitigate the fears that Americans rightfully have about him. But he's not doing that because he knows and we all know that he does want to abuse power and he's not going to respect the rule of law. But on the subject of Fox News, since 
Steve Bannon mentioned it. Here's how they're handling it, because uh, I, I view this as coping and seething, because if Trump really did go after the media, odds are they would be part of that. But nonetheless, let's hear what they have to say. The New York Times has a headline, Trump deflects question on retribution mm-hmm. and law breaking at town hall. CNN, Trump sidesteps question when asked if he plans to abuse powers if reelected. And Rolling Stone's headline, Trump to Hannity on whether he'll abuse power as president. And they included a shrug emoji. Also, uh, the Biden campaign posted on social media that Trump said that he'd be a dictator on day one. Is that your uh, assessment of what he said? No, not at all, Carly. Uh, He was saying, and what I took away from it before you read those headlines, that he would likely use executive orders to close the border and drill, drill, drill back here in America again. And, and of course, the easiest bet you could make is seeing on other networks this morning having a complete and total meltdown over that comment when they know exactly what he meant. It was a joke. It it was a joke. He was talking about policy, and now the media is making something out of nothing. And as Carly gave me the look, Joe, you literally took the words right out of my mouth because I said the same thing. (laughs) He's just joking. Come on, liberal snowflakes. Listen, if somebody was planning to commit a murder, and you found evidence that they were tracking their victim, they had written multiple journals about how they intend to kill this person, and then you found receipts of recently purchased weapons, and in that same journal they said they were going to use said weapons to kill that person, and then when you confronted them about this, if their response was, oh yeah, I'm definitely gonna commit the murder, Teehee, even though they said it in a joking term, I still think that you have reason to believe that it's not just a joke because of the evidence for the thing that they're planning to do. Now, the spin here from Fox News is especially rich because they screeched for a long time calling Obama a dictator every single time he signed a fucking executive order, not to mention when Obama was speaking to other world leaders and said, I could win a third term if I were able to run, but I am not because it's important that we respect the rule of law. What do they call him? A dictator. So if the shoe were on the other foot, if Joe Biden or any Democrat were saying, I'm going to go after the media, Fox News, for example, I'm going to imprison my political opponents, they would be horrified and rightfully so. In fact, Gigi Sohn was not approved as the FCC nominee because they thought that she would use her power to go after Fox News and strip them of their broadcast licensing. So when somebody is actually saying they're going to do this for them to not take it seriously. It's just coping to me because look, he, Trump will go after them, right? Trump is going to go after them too if they don't toe the line. But here's some more from Fox News because they're saying the same thing all across the network. So you know, for one day, he's going to be a dictator. It's incredible. whatever. But it's incredible what he does. This is a guy that knows how to manipulate and, and control media. This is why the other candidates have found it tough right. to get any any type of right. air. He gives you the headline, which is, I am going to be a dictator on day one. Then after that, he goes, this is what I'm really going to do. And he looks right. at Sean, and Sean is like, hold up, hold up. That's not what you're really saying, right? He goes, I, I, yeah, look at him. He's going right. crazy right now. He's going crazy. But that's his way of controlling the media, and then saying what he really wants to say. Well, but to, I completely agree with all that. He he knows exactly what he's doing. He's making a joke. But nonetheless, 
He said, I'm going to be a dictator for one day. And so, you know, the, the political left now has their hair on fire. Donald Trump admitted to Sean Hannity he's going to be a dictator because he wants to close the, the border and drill, drill, drill. And that's not the definition of a dictator. Yeah, that's, I mean, just, no, he, that's a leader he's, who's he's trying to protect our country. Actually, if you think about it, he's really a genius because he knows how to control the media and he gives you the headlines. And sure, I'll grant that to him. He does know how to generate headlines. But... Not all headlines are positive. And there's this saying that any publicity is good publicity. But I don't think that that's applicable to politics. I mean, if Biden, for example, was on stage and he shit his pants, I can guarantee you that that would generate a lot of headlines, but not necessarily the headlines that he'd want to see. And they defend Trump. But again, the irony is that he has made it clear multiple times that he's disillusioned with Fox News because the entire network did not go along with his 2020 election lies. He much prefers OAN and Newsmax now. So they could theoretically be the target of his administration if he chooses to come after them and follows through on this promise to go after people in the media. What's that? Sean Hannity did a segment where they aired some grievances of Trump. Well, we're coming after you. So... They are actually worried, but they're trying to play it off like they're not. But in conclusion, Trump says that he wants to be a dictator. And when he says that, I think that we shouldn't just dismiss it as a joke, especially given the evidence that we have that he wants to be a fucking dictator. Saying it with a joking tone all of a sudden doesn't make it any less true because the actions are what speak louder than words. And I didn't need the confirmation from him, but the fact that he won't unequivocally shoot down the idea that he'll abuse power should tell you everything you need to know. It's perhaps the first time that Trump is actually being honest about his intent and we ignore him at our own peril. What more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.